You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Ashley Voss. This is WFHB Local News for Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. It costs us in so many ways, and it just makes the problem get worse and worse and worse until it it's at your door. In today's feature report, WFHB environmental correspondent Zero Rose speaks with eco-architect Mark Lakeman on the human ecology of placemaking and building tiny home eco-villages for the unhoused community. More in the bottom half of tonight's show. Also coming up in the next half hour, Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. But first, your local headlines. The Monroe County Council met on Tuesday, October 10th. The meeting began with the approval of an appointment to the Environmental Commission, followed by a comment from Council Member Trent Deckard. I just I want to uh, thank Mr. Gunther for stepping forward for service. I know he's done that in the past. And I also want to say to anyone watching at home, if you were thinking that you would like to get more involved in serving, Boards and commissions are a place to do it. And I feel like we used to say that a lot, and maybe that needs repeated here. Um, How do you know if you're qualified or not? Well, if you're interested and you're willing to serve your community, that'll work. So take a look at the lists that are out there. Let one of us know if you'd be interested. We could try to help you with that. But we need folks in this government of the people to serve in this community with your friends and neighbors. So please step forward as Mr. Gunther has done. Next, Jail Commander Kyle Gibbons shared the semi-annual summary of the Monroe County Commissary Fund, stating that the jail has gained $153,491.54 since January 1st. He then went on to state how roughly $80,000 of that money was spent. As of this moment, we've spent that $80K, uh, but we are furnishing... uh, every single inmate that comes into the facility. And I've talked about this in prior meetings, so I don't want to go take too much time with everybody here. Um, Shirts, underwears, bras, um, anything that they need, uh, even if they came in with it, we give them new Um, shoes. uh, We paid for different light items that were short for 2023, uh, mats. Uh, Some of the people that have come through, you've seen the condition that the mats were in. We ensured that they're not tore up. They're in one piece. They're not flat where people are laying down on the metal beds. Um, Any any loss that we've had in terms of the budget we came into, we've compensated with commissary monies, which is specifically what the sheriff is trying to do with those that money that we bring in. This statement was followed with a question from council member Kate Wiltz. I have a question just. for everyone's edification, the commissary fund is generated from revenue that the um, folks who are incarcerated spend in the jail. And what are the types of things that are most uh, most often purchased and contributing to the fund? <laughs> well, commonly purchased items. Uh, we offer a variety of items, whether it's hygiene, 
all the way to soda pop. Uh, the most purchased items are tobacco products, number one, first and foremost, by far. Um, soda pop, uh, very rarely we get, I mean, we get uh, ramen noodles, things like that, things that are easy to make. Uh, we've, we put microwaves, which we purchase out of commissary in every block so that people could have warm food later on. Uh, so that they can purchase certain things that you could cook in my popcorn, for instance, is another item that's pretty highly sought after. Um, but you see a lot of purchases we've approved outside of our jail jumpsuits. You can purchase now and wear inside the block um, sweatpants, sweatshirt, shorts, so that you can come out of that just that one issue clothing that we offer initially and save that for when you have... AA, you can wear because you have to wear your jumpsuit when you're moving through the facility. Oh, okay. Um, before you had to have your jumpsuit on at all times. And when we came in, we thought, I mean, that's hard to wear when you only launder it two times a week. Uh, that's because you can't hold up that, that laundry schedule. When you go through the 200 people, you can only get that two times a week. Mm -hmm. So we try to rectify that with our commissary fund. So basically what we've, we, what we've done as a staff is say, if the inmates are going to spend money on products here and we're going to get a surplus with that, we're going to put it back into the facility itself and the inmates inside of it as much as we can. Yeah, thank you. The discussion of the semi-annual summary of the Monroe County Commissary Fund ended with a question and answer about the purchase of tasers as a form of a less lethal tool for captains and sergeants in the jail and a comment from Councilmember Jennifer Crossley. I know you had just talked about Commander Gibbons, um, the, you know, the underwear and bras and things like that that you have given to, been able to purchase for the female inmates. And I just wanted to say I appreciate that and thank you very much. You all gave me an opportunity to go earlier in the spring to talk to the female inmates. And a lot of them were explaining the reasons why it, it would be helpful to feel some kind of dignity to have those things and why it's important for that. And so I guess I, I was a little taken aback and was surprised that some of those things may have not been kept up um, with things. But I just wanted to just really say publicly acknowledge uh, and say thank you for doing that and all that you continue to do to put some type of human dignity to folks that are being held um, and incarcerated. So thank you. The next Monroe County Council meeting is scheduled for Tuesday, October 17th. At the Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting on October 9th, Executive Director of the Lake Monroe Water Fund, Michelle Cohn, gave a presentation on ways the Lake Monroe Water Fund plans to ensure the water quality of Indiana. She shared that the water fund is one of only 43 in the United States and the first in Indiana. She also explained that the water fund works on improving the water quality upstream for the people who use it downstream. But what we would like to do is to put together a task force that has um, folks from the finance world and other stakeholders to figure out a way to help homeowners be able to afford to fix or replace their septic systems. Um, you know, they're upwards of $30,000 and in some cases closer to 50 sometimes to put in a new one. So a lot of people just cannot afford that, and that's something we're keen to tackle. Um, we've gotten uh, approval of 
a grant we put in to, to bring those folks together. Um, we're waiting for the final uh, dollars from the federal government to go to IDEM to be able to release that to us. So I'm 99% sure we're going to be getting that. Um, the other program that we're doing, uh, hopefully, we've submitted an application for uh, $204,000 to the um, U.S. Forest Service, and that grant has three parts. One part is invasives removal in Yellowwood, um, particularly close to the lake, and then going out from there. Another section is working with the town of Nashville on removing invasive trees and planting native trees. And then the third component is having a technician be able to go out and assess private landowners' uh, property and help them to do best management practices on their wooded property. Board member Molly Stewart asked what impact the native plants have on water quality. Cohn responded. In a nutshell, native plants have uh, vastly deeper roots than invasive species, and so they do a much better job of holding the soil and preventing erosion. So it's something that I, I'm learning about all the time, and we had um, Ellen Jacart from MC Iris talk to us. Um, very interesting, just talking about how that kind of creates a, a mesh or almost, almost a sponge that holds moisture as well. And so it helps retain soil, and it also helps keep you know, flooding um, at bay, if you will. Another problem addressed during the meeting was about the approaching autumn weather bringing leaves and storms. MS4 coordinator Liz Carter continued the conversation about the Title 13 proposal and addressed the questions the board had concerning the lack of leaf pickup and the impact it could have on stormwater runoff. Board member Jim Sherman asked if people would be punished for raking their leaves without a service to pick them up. Carter responded. Leaves in a, that have been pushed into a ditch is, would currently count as an illicit discharge. We don't need this code update for that. So it's still, it's still something we can enforce. I think it's also something HAND seeks to enforce. Carter added that the MS4 department would not be responsible for the actual raking of the leaves. Okay, long answer short, we're not sure. Okay. Yeah, so we will respond to leaves as they become drainage problems. Um, I don't think we're going to be the appropriate department if, you're, if you look at your neighbor and he's raking leaves into the street. They're like, my neighbor's raking leaves into the street. I think once we start getting into uh, watercourse problems, then it will become a CBU, just like any blocked drain. In the proposal, the amount of water that would lead to a construction site check seemed to be up for interpretation. Board member Amanda Burnham gave her thoughts on the matter. From what I understand from conversations I've had that there can be um, a discrepancy between what what city may say and what CBU may recommend or vice versa. And I think it's very important that we, we make sure that we're all on the same page with that. Um, it's very, very frustrating for developers when we're not when we're not clear. And it's, of course, very frustrating, I think, for staff if there's conflicts in um, the defining of what is proper vegetation in the proper areas. I don't know who is right, who is wrong, who has better suggestions or what, but regardless, we must get together so that we are, that we are both on the same page with that and um, not cause future frustrations for, for everybody. Carter reassured the board that they have future meetings to further revise the proposal. The next Bloomington Utility Service Board meeting will be held on October 23rd.
In today's feature report, WFHB environmental correspondent Zero Rose speaks with eco-architect Mark Lakeman on the human ecology of placemaking and building tiny home eco-villages for the unhoused community. We turn to Rose for more. And uh, I was interested to see that uh, part of the Dignity Village evolution was that it became a nonprofit and a small business incubator that space was made for that. And as you were saying earlier, some of these conservative types about bootstraps, well, there you go. I mean, about creating an autonomy, a self-sufficiency, and I believe they're mostly not on government programs and things there, what is it, $50 a month that people are paying to participate. I'm sure there's a bit of a sliding scale and discretion involved there. Yeah. And then self-governance structure that they've developed code and yeah. things like fire inspections, you know. Yeah, there's uh, one thing's for sure is that there's these founding conditions that are really challenging. Uh, you have to make agreements to get things up and running. But then as everybody kind of learns and establishes trust, and I'm talking about you know, everyone from the village, the people living in that village to um, the people that are like working with the bureaucracy from within the bureaucracy to help kind of regulate this or help it kind of establish itself. And then the local community, everybody has these initial learning curves. But um, as people kind of shift from a founding mode to a more of a management mode, um, you know, then then more becomes possible. Uh, in the case of Dignity Village, you know, they're moving in, building platforms in order to just set up their tents. And uh, it can be like that. It's actually quite a beautiful thing. I, I think it's kind of an anthropological process to watch that people go from you know, basically a nomadic phase to a settled phase. And um, that's where middle school kids with tools, high school kids, county employees, if you have a high amount of veterans in this, oh my God. So let me just tell you about this one village that we've done. This is called Veterans Village. <laughs> Oregon City came to us and they're like, okay, we're a really conservative place and it's a stretch to just help anybody, but we know for sure what is a good starter for this community is veterans. We can help veterans get off the street. And because um, we know that that'll be supported across the community. So we have created Veterans Village. For the cost of one freaking single family house, we built 36 individual units all with electricity and then centralized services of a giant community kitchen with multiple burnies and burners and sinks, a huge dining hall, an infirmary, an office, laundry, showers, toilets, ADA access systems, you know, a parking lot, all of that for the cost of one single family house. But part of what made that possible is the fact that there's all these all these Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, and more 
veterans out there ready to help. Oh my God, it's like a tool festival. It's like a tool parade. If you say that you are going to help veterans and you put out the call, you freaking have the Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines show up to help with all their tools ready to go. Like we blasted out 36 units. We mass produced them. And it was the most beautiful thing. I just want to say this to every conservative in the country. You totally are missing out if you don't get to watch veterans from the military working with kids and showing them how to use tools. There's your better world right there. And they're doing it with their hands. Who in the world, who in the world would ever oppose such an idea? And that's what Bloomington can have. Our society needs to stand up and come to its own damn rescue. And the way that we begin doing that is with the people that are right in front of us in distress. We have all these people that need to help, like all these people with skills and talents that totally want to help. We have all these disengaged youth that are totally like atrophying in these te technological distractions and then falling into drugs. If people are afraid of addressing problems, then they're missing the whole opportunity of re-engaging the disengaged society to start focusing on one problem after another problem and starting to convert them into these, you know, luminous solutions that inspire us to do more. The thing about houseless people, I would say to everybody in the damn country, is they are right in front of your face. And it's almost like God is putting your opportunity right in your face, calling like, Hello, hello, knock, knock, knock. Is your heart awake? Is your empathy alive? Do you see that they also have thumbs and can speak? Like your species is in distress in front of your very eyes. And if you can't show up to that, you do not deserve redemption. You're, you're, the train is passing you by, you know? People want to have a sense of hope. They've got to get involved with their own skills and talents and agency and their own freaking, like, this is one of the most beautiful thing. When we do this work, we find all these people with one degree of separation between them. Like you've got somebody building some house and then, and then they meet the person who they're building for. And it's their best freaking friend from third grade. You know, like, that's what you find. That's the magic in all of this re-engage, reconnect, and discover all of the richness of, of the connection that's right in front of your face all the time, that you're not like really bothering to discover because you're not involved. And so um, how many of these communities are able to become self-sustaining? And uh, is that by them becoming a business in any kind of way? And yeah, okay. jobs. you brought this up, and I'm sorry I didn't address it sooner, but about Dignity Village. Yeah, at first, they didn't have micro enterprises because they were too busy, busy building infrastructure. And that's a good enough story. You know, Portland, Oregon was really satisfied to see that they were so busy being productive and industrious. But, you know, at first, no one could afford to pay anything. Um, but now they are entirely economically self-supporting. You know, everybody in the village chips in some amount of money. And, you know, the last time I was out there, I'm on their board of advisors. Last time I was out there, it was 25 a month. And I was impressed. Like, that's that's really good. And then, you know, 
the thing is so successful, it helps them actually start to save money. Everybody there is stable enough to get out and get a job. And then they, they start building up some money so that then they can transition out of the village. Because except for the fact that they make their best friends, their best friendships of their life there, and they develop lasting, long, long like lifelong relationships there, everybody, for other than that, they would all like to go back to a normal life. You know, except in a normal life, they're way more isolated from other people than they are at the village. So that's what makes it hard to leave. But the village itself, it gives them the opportunity to attain leadership, to live in a place of co-responsibility. It does all this stuff to repair people. That's why it has the lowest crime rate in all the city. People there become very mentally and physically healthy because living and working happens in the same place and the relationships with everyone around them deepens. They all become great listeners and great communicators. And this is what actually replaces violence and distress and drug dependence because they find the thing that was missing the whole time which is a place among a greater whole like every american and I, I don't even care what somebody like no i'm libertarian i'm an i'm an island done to myself i don't need no roads no i don't even need air damn it like every freaking american is starved to go beyond just being an individual they want to be part of a greater whole they do. They want to be part of a family. They want to be part of a community on some level. And anybody who fights against that is going to actually have to turn around and notice that they're they're part of clubs. They might be part of some group that's trying to overthrow the government. But like whatever their affinity group is, that's something that they're attracted to. And that's real. So at the village, yeah, it's self-sufficient. There's all these micro enterprises village has a great deal with the urban foresters like for, foresters have to take down problematic maples or something like that or an oak tree drops a branch on some power lines you got to take down the tree at some point the big pieces of biomass get trucked out to the village rather than chipping them up and putting them in a dump where all they do is emit carbon and make climate change worse instead the tree parts go to dignity village they cut them up they split them and then they season them and sell them to Portlanders for fuel for the wintertime. Um, and then that helps to pay the bills for the village. So the village has lots of things going on. Each individual contributes a little money. The village has enterprises that it does as a group. And then it has these smaller enterprises that individuals and little smaller groups are doing. And all of it adds up to the resource that the village needs to, to meet its needs, to feed itself and stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, great to hear things like that, that, you know, we can take to people that just can't conceive of it being anything but a repository of the most lazy, good for nothing uh, shirkers, <laughs> yeah. you know, which, which really exist. But even those people, uh, can be inspired into things. And if, even if they can't, it's less of a problem for the community to have them housed and fed than out trying to steal to survive, uh, you know, to, to be putting them through the hospital, to taxpayer money to keep them in jail and 
then feed them commissary in there. It, it's it's less expensive, and it's better for the community if they are not just pushed right onto the pavement and not even allowed to sleep. Every time they lay down, they ran off somewhere else. That increases the stress, the the mental degradation. It it, it, it even more so makes makes people go to drugs. It costs us. It costs us in so many ways, and it just makes the problem get worse and worse and worse until it. It's at your door, and uh, I think it costs us our our soul. Up next, Low Bub's Little Show, a co-production between WFHB and Low Bub's Big Fund. We turn now to that segment. Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here is today's featured animal. Bryn is a super loving American Staffordshire Terrier mix, just under five years old. She has been enjoying the play yard pool at the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter and splashes around after lounging in the sun. Bryn enjoys both her solo time and playing with pals outside. She has multiple skin issues and shelter staff can advise on how to help her in the future in a new home. The appearance of her skin has improved with time. She loves to snuggle, but also has an independent personality where she is content to do her own thing. To learn more about Bryn, please reach out to the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter. If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, you can learn more at our websites, goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. According to the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, there are a number of possible skin disorders in dogs. Allergies can be in response to food or the environment, Itching due to allergies can be localized or all over the body. Hot spots form when skin is irritated, such as from allergies, flea bites, an infection, or matted hair. Then the dog licks or scratches at the spot. Flea bites can cause itching, scabs, and hair loss. At first, irritation from flea bites can often be seen at the base of a dog's tail. Pyoderma is a bacterial infection that can result in red, irritated skin with pustules and may or may not include hair loss. Ringworm is a fungal infection that can affect the skin, hair, and or nails. 
Ringworm is highly contagious and can transmit between dogs or even to humans. Mange is caused by mites and it may result in redness, itching, and hair loss. There are two types of mange, demodectic and sarcoptic. Demodectic mange is not contagious and is usually found in young dogs with compromised immune systems, malnourishment, or severe stress. Sarcoptic mange is caused by the scabies mite and is highly contagious between dogs. People can also be infected by this type of mange. If you notice any signs of a skin disorder, it is recommended to consult with a veterinarian for proper diagnosis and treatment. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB. Produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.